go ahead and begin here with a word of prayer. I'd like to see if we can introduce one another first, and then uh, we'll get right into the material tonight. Let's pray first. Lord, we are grateful tonight for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word, but uh, we are thankful for furthermore for your spirit who does perform a work in us. Lord, as we uh, study this tonight and the rest of this uh, uh, term here, we ask that you would uh, give us uh, wisdom as we penetrate this material, give us, uh, uh, give us a, a, a zeal and an eagerness for the, uh, for the knowledge, re- recognizing that it is not simply material to uh, commit to our, our mental storehouses, but also uh, material that is about you and your person. Lord, I ask that we might uh, uh, know you better as a result of this and uh, that uh, we might then in turn glorify you uh, as our end in this universe. I pray all these things in your name. Okay, well, uh, just uh, a little bit of matter of introduction. I'm going to tell you who I am, and then I'll ask you to at least give me your names. Anything else you might want to say, but at least your names. I don't know if I'll get them all tonight, but uh, we'll do our best to uh, uh, figure one or two out every night, and by the time we're five or six weeks into the uh, semester, hopefully we are on a good first-name basis with everyone here. My name is Mark Snowberger. I teach at the Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, all this, I guess, on some of your your book here. If if you don't have a book by any chance, out at the uh, front entry right where everyone comes in, there's a box full of them, so if you're if you're lacking that, uh, why, uh, feel free to step out and get that. Uh, but uh, I've been at uh, the seminary since, well, as a, as a student since 1994, and then uh, on, on library staff since 1997, and then uh, on the teaching staff uh, full-time for the last three years. So uh, that's uh, my short story. I've got a wife and uh, two boys. I used to say two little boys, they're not so little anymore. Um, but uh, 14 and 9, 14 and 9, believe it or not. And uh, so that's uh, my brief introduction here. If I could at least get your names, uh, anything else you might want to say, I'll start here with Ed. You know your name, so go ahead. Yeah, Eddie Martin. Sure. My wife, Sharon. Sharon Martin. Eddie's wife. This is Eddie's wife. Ron and Sue Biggs. <laughs> I'm Bob Stepp. My wife, Sadie, will be here in a minute. She's been registering people. Okay. I'm Larry Olsander. Okay. Right. I'm Kim Fisher. Okay. I'm Bonnie Bradford. Tony Cavanaugh. Tony. Rich Carrico. Rich. Gary Hensman. Okay. Lana Harris. Lana. Kim LaChapelle. Eugene LaChapelle. Robert, okay. And by the way, it's Mark. I know it says Dr. Snowbreaker. It's you can just leave off the Dr. Snowbreaker part. <laughs> Mark is fine. That's that's just to that's just to scare the real students at the seminary. <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing that there now. So. Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and start right into this. Um, Tonight, we'll actually go, I'm I'm planning to go rather rapidly tonight, just because the material right up front is is material that probably there's not a whole lot of debate about, 
probably not a whole lot of question, but I think it's important background material uh, to tell us who the person of the uh, doctrine of, of, of the Holy Spirit is. We start with the person of the Spirit, and then we get into the work of the Spirit, and that's where I think things will get a, a bit more lively. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll cruise our way through the person of the Spirit, and then we'll slow down and uh, really dig into some of the material on the work of the Spirit. By way of introduction, I, I note here that a lot of people think that they are experts on religion. In fact, just about everybody you meet is an expert on religion. And the reason is because they've had religious experiences. And, uh, and it's, it seems that the popular understanding of religion is that if you are an expert, the more religious experiences you have had. And I think the basic flaw I say here is that religion, that religion is not a purely subjective experience. It is subjective. Uh, hopefully you do have some sort of religious experience. Uh, but we recognize that the, uh, the fountainhead of religious knowledge is not experience, but scriptures. Uh, the one who is a genuine expert in uh, the things of the Spirit, of, of the things of the things of God, is not the one with the most experiences, but the one with the most biblical knowledge. And so that's what we are trying to do here. We recognize that there are some objective bounds on what uh, religion is about. There is right and wrong in it, and there are right and wrong expressions of our understanding of the person of God, and specifically the person of the Holy Spirit. So that's that's what we're trying to do tonight, and recognize uh, that the Holy Spirit is perhaps uh, one of the most ineffable of these religious topics we can talk about. Uh, and just I, I mentioned just a few of the names and metaphors that are given to the Spirit. Dove, wind, fire, water, sound. Uh, these, are, these are terms that are used of the Spirit, and they're, they're just sort of out there, and a little bit intangible. Uh, his work, the same way. He reveals, he illuminates. What does that mean? <laughs> we'll talk about that, because it is a biblical term here. But what does it mean for God to illuminate us? What are, the, what are the mechanics of that? He leads us. How? They whisper in your ear, write things in the clouds, or are there other ways in which he communicates to us? How does he do that? Gifting us. Uh, whether those be the miraculous gifts or the plain ordinary gifts, um, there's still something rather stunning about what the, the Holy Spirit is doing in that imparting peace. What's that? Now, everybody has their own idea about what peace is. So what is it? What does it mean Say the God of peace will be with you? Um, his work is also surprising. He creates life where there was none. He produces affections that we never had before. Hopefully you've had some of these that have uh, started to uh, develop since you've become a believer. Um, he even causes actions that border on the bizarre. And we'll talk about these, too, like speaking in tongues, which is truly miraculous. It's uh, not something that can be explained naturalistically. So what is it that he's doing? Why does he do it? And he does, does he still do it today? Of course, it's a big question on everybody's mind uh, when we're talking about that kind of a topic. But this all in mind, we have to recognize that there are real threats to our objectivity because of the nature of the material. And so our first rule, I say here, is that doctrine trumps experience. Doctrine trumps experience. Uh, Dr. McCune up at the seminary 
uh, would tell the story about how he was going through seminary back uh, 40-some years ago now. And uh, one of the instructors at Great Theological Seminary at the time uh, had uh, his wife had had rather some severe illness, and uh, so they weren't finding fulfillment and satisfaction in the church. He went wandered off, and he found uh, he found uh, some sort of group that really uh, emphasized miraculous elements of the Holy Spirit. He had an experience. She had an experience. They decided to forego doctors. Uh, his wife died. It was really a difficult situation. So Dr. McKean's bag of groceries put himself through uh, seminary. And uh, lo and behold, this fellow comes through the line. Dr. McKean, Raleigh, I guess, at the time, uh, he asked him, so what's up? What's, what's, what's the deal? What, what, what happened? And uh, he explained to... Dr. McCune, what had happened, and Dr. McCune said, well, that's not what you used to teach when you were at, uh, at seminary. What, what made you change your mind? And the answer was, well, the man with the doctrine is not at the mercy of the man with the experience. That was his response, and it stuck with me, the illustration, and uh, apparently it stuck with him because he told the story. Uh, but uh, but I, I'm here to tell you that's, that's not true. Uh, the man with the experience is at the man with the mercy. He is at the mercy of the man with the doctrine, assuming that it's a biblical doctrine. Um, and no matter how vivid your experience, I say, if it conflicts with objective scripture truth, then something about that experience is either misinterpreted or, or, actually, or possibly even fabricated. Um, you can't talk someone out of the experience they've had. I recognize that. Uh, <coughs> sometimes they fabricate them, but sometimes they actually have some sort of an experience, and they've simply misinterpreted it. Um, you know, you've always, you've, you've all had dreams of some sort, and you wonder, was there some significance to that one? And, uh, and you know, I, I dreamed this morning that it was snowing. Is there some significance to that? Well, hopefully not. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but you know. There are some who would have that experience and interpret it as some sort of a sign from God. Um, and and the, the point I'm trying to make here is, you know, you might have had an experience. It might have been a real experience, uh, but you may have misinterpreted it. And so that's one of the suggestions that could be there, because doctrine, biblical doctrine, always does trump experience, no matter what that, what that is. I say, though, there is, on the other hand, a, an opposite approach to doctrine of Holy Spirit, things of this, of this nature here, and that is those, I say here, who are so objective in their thinking that they place restrictions on the Holy Spirit's ministry. And so I sec say a second rule here is that as fundamentalists, those who hold to the fundamentals of the faith, what I simply mean by that, we're not deists, but supernaturalists. What do I mean by that? Well, a deist, you're familiar with the uh, founding of the, uh, of the American nation here. There were a lot of deists who were operating in the founding of our country. And what did they believe? What did they teach? Well, if I can put it in simplistic terms, God wound up the universe, set it there, and backed away. And there's never any, any, any sort of interaction of God with his universe. The universe is simply just ticking according to, to natural laws. And God is simply have, has a hands-off policy. Well, God doesn't have a hands-off policy. Uh, with respect to his universe. Uh, he still is, I say here, stepping into the space-time continuum. 
Altering the normal course of events creates new life, new desires, new affections. It gives encouragement, comfort, conviction, assurance. It gives us courage where we didn't have it. And the means by which the Spirit does this is sometimes ineffable, hard to, hard to put into concrete terms, somewhat intangible. And so we, we can't afford to say that the Holy Spirit is doing nothing. He is doing something. But we do want to, as much as possible, objectify that um, through the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures tell us about what the Holy Spirit is doing? And we uh, govern ourselves by that. Okay, so that's, that's introduction. I don't want to spend a lot of time here with bibliography, but uh, there are some things I do want to point out because uh, we, we can't possibly deal with everything here, and there are some topics you might want to pursue further. And let me just uh, mention some of these. Um, Kevin DeYoung has a new book here, Just Do Something. Excellent book on decision-making, and uh, a very accessible one. I mean, you could give it to a teenager or someone who is... Uh, uh, in the midst of making life decisions or something of that nature, uh, not uh, you know real heady. Some of these things are a little bit heady, but uh, uh, I'd, I'd like to point out at least some of these that I think could be helpful. Uh, Thomas Edgar has a very uh, comprehensive book on uh, miraculous gifts. What are they? Are they still around? Why or why not? Um, let me see here. Uh, book on sanctification, your five views. There's a lot of a lot of uh, debate about this, but Anthony Hokula has a very good article on what are the mechanics of sanctification? How do you become sanctified? Uh, how do you start growing in grace? What are what happens? Um, there's all kinds of theories about that, and I think he's got the goods. Um, let me see here. Gary Friesen, I think it's a little dated now, but decision making in the will of God, I think is the uh, really was some groundbreaking material in it today. I remember when I was going to college, uh, the, the uh, <coughs> debate became so incensed and so uh, shrill at, at the Bible college I worked was that they actually banned this book on, on campus because of uh, causing so much dissension in the, in the school. But uh, I think he's uh, um, got some very helpful things to say here. Um, Richard Gaffin, I think, is a helpful book on uh, tongues and other spiritual gifts as well. Um, let me see here. Uh, John MacArthur's book on charismatic chaos. Um, I think he goes after a an older style of, of uh, tongues and gifts, uh, but it's still a helpful it's still a helpful work. I think we're going to find that the the idea of tongues has developed and changed and evolved over the years, and uh, so there's there's some newer things that are better, I think, for some of the newer expressions, but um, I think still a well, well done book. Keep in Step with the Spirit by Packer, outstanding book on, on sanctification. If I was to have a textbook for the class, I would use Edwin Palmer. Um, again, a, a very accessible book on uh, the walks through, just like we're going to do some of the, the basic ministries of the, of the Holy Spirit. Really an outstanding, an outstanding book. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Robert Thomas, Understanding Spiritual Gifts, also very good on gifts. Um, and uh, we'll leave it, leave it off on there. Uh, 
say there's other other books here. Most most if, if it's on the list, it has some value for you. But uh, um, those are perhaps some of the ones you might be most most particularly interested. Do you have any questions on anything that's there, or perhaps anything that's not there? I'd be happy to to field that question because um, I uh, there's scheduled books out there. If not, we'll just uh, move ahead here. Like I said, we're not going to spend too much time on this material on the person of the Holy Spirit. Probably will take most of the time here uh, tonight, but uh, it's, we're going to cruise through it fairly quickly because there's simply not a great deal of debate. What I do want to establish here, though, are some things that uh, I think are important. One, the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a person. Second, he is, in fact, God. And uh, we'll see if we can't parse out what... Uh, what that means. A couple of questions at the end perhaps will generate some interest uh, on the, the spiritual relationship to the other men, uh, other members of the uh, Godhead and what it, what it means. Uh, but uh, for the most part we'll zip through here. Start here by talking about some of the functions of personality and that's what I think of personality as. Um, when I talk about a person I'm not talking about a human. What I'm saying is a person is a being with a cluster of functions that, that render him a personal being. This would include humans, it would include God, it would include angels. Uh, these are personal beings. And so I've got a list of about nine characteristics, qualities here, that, uh, that come together to make someone a person. And I think we can demonstrate that the Holy Spirit has all of these. Spirituality, life, intelligence, purpose activity, self-consciousness, freedom, emotion, and moral agency. Spirituality, I think, goes without saying. That's the name we give to him, the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, but what does it mean? What does it mean when it says that God is a spirit? Well, it doesn't simply mean that he's an, I invisible. I think that's sometimes what we think Halloween time. We think about spirits and ghouls and all that. But the... Uh, but uh, when we say that, that uh, the Holy Spirit or God is a spirit, we mean that God has an enduring identity apart from a physical body. Um, but what it means here is that what the Holy Spirit is as pure spirit, God is spirit, John 4.24 says, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, tells us a little bit of something of what, what is meant by him being spirit. Um, we need to engage ourselves in the worship of God. And the same term is used here, spirit. Okay, God is spirit. We worship in spirit. So there must be something, something, something that connects these two, something that connects us with him, that says that we have something in common with him. And I think the idea here is that it is the sum total of what you are in an immaterial sense. Okay, you've got a mind, You've got a will, you've got emotions. Yes, there's a locus of all those in your brain, but you're, I think we all recognize that you are more than your brain. Uh, you, are, you are more than the sum total, sum total of your physical parts. And so God, is, God has a mind, a will, an emotion, and if we're going to worship the Holy Spirit in spirit, it would seem to uh, imply that we have to engage all of those immaterial functions in our worship. Our mind needs to be engaged when we're worshiping. Our, our, our wills, our, 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 our affections need to be engaged when we are worshiping. I know you've got the... Do you still do music here? Or, okay. 
here's our music guide. Uh, hopefully saying amen at this point, but uh, there's, uh, there's, there needs to be more than just singing words, and even more than just singing words and knowing what they mean. There has to be an, engage, an engaging of the infections and will as well. And so uh, hopefully that is something that you know, motivates you when you come together uh, for public worship in the church services. Spirit is also alive. Stop me at any time we have questions. Um, like I said, the first, first, like I said, tonight we're cruising, uh, but we will slow down considerably as we work through this. Um, but don't, don't hesitate at any point to say, whoa, 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 stop. I need to say something. Ask something. We can, we can always accommodate that. So what is life then? If uh, he is a living being. I say here, technical definition perhaps, life is potential activity or energy directed by one's mind. So the Holy Spirit's able to do conscious things external to himself. In fact, he's called, he's described in terms of streams of living water welling up within the believer, spilling out in blessing and service. So he is the source of life, the fountainhead of life. So he's not only alive, but he is the source of life. Um, he is called the spirit of the living God here in 2 Corinthians 3. He's intelligent. He perceives, correlates facts, reasons, applies knowledge. He's called in Isaiah 11 the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of knowledge. Acts 15 we find that it seemed good to the Spirit not to burden you beyond any, uh, with anything beyond the following. Well, what's he talking about? Well, it's, it's in the middle of this, this uh, uh, Acts 15 controversy. Um, is it necessary for believers to be circumcised in the new regime here, the new dispensation? Is it necessary? And so this was, the, this was the conclusion. It seemed good to the Spirit, and it seemed good to us to come to this conclusion. So whatever you're doing, when, it, when you reason together and come to a conclusion, the Holy Spirit did the same thing. And uh, he was involved in that. Okay, he gives gifts of wisdom and knowledge, therefore he must have wisdom and knowledge himself. He's got purpose, <coughs> defined here as reaction to a future goal, which exists only in the mind, as if it were already present. We do this all the time. We wake up at uh, 4 or 5 or 6 or whatever, when, whenever you wake up and you lay there for a while and you purpose. You know, kitty cats don't do that. The puppy dog doesn't, you know, what I need to do today, you know, put, make a mental list of all the things he needs to do. He just, he just hops up and does whatever cats do instinctively. But not God. The Holy Spirit has a future goal in mind, and he acts in order to achieve that goal. For instance, we find the Holy Spirit using signs and miracles to lead the Gentiles to a place of obedience. Well, that's planning. You have to get a plan for that. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, I see the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he determines in order to effectively equip the church. I... I, I I, I was just telling uh, you, I think I was, I was telling Ed here, that uh, um, whenever I come to, to this church, I really enjoy coming and seeing everyone doing, putting, putting their little piece of the puzzle together here to make, make the church run, which I think is really outstanding. But 
what First Corinthians tells us here is that the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he determines to make sure that everything does fit together. So, yes, you're, you're well organized and uh, you're well directed in that end because God has given you know, the officers of the church to equip you for the work of the ministry. But be, be, before that and beyond that, there's God giving gifts as he determined to make sure that everything works together. And that is that is that means there's somebody who's 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 more efficient and more careful in his planning uh, than your pastors even in making sure that things work together for this church. That's the plan, the purpose of God. Okay? So he's living, he's vibrant, he's active. Next point here. He does things. Uh, these are the kinds of things, in fact, that uh, again, your your whatever your pet is at home, whether it be a pet snake or turtles, they don't do any of these things here. He speaks in ordinary language. He intercedes. He's a he's sort of a go-between, an arbiter. Uh, animals don't do that. He gives commands. He reveals material. He instructs. He testifies. He convicts. Creates, empowers, guides. He himself prays for us. He comforts. Uh, these, are, these are the kinds of things that only persons can do, and the Holy Spirit is involved in each one of these. And I, Again, all of this to say that God is, the Holy Spirit is not some, just some, some sort of energy force out there, you know, like you know, Star Wars, the force be with you. Um, the Holy Spirit is, actively a, is a person who is actively involved in your lives, in the church's life, and uh, we, can't, we can't take that away from him. And, and if we have a view of the Holy Spirit that does less than that, then, then we've, we've got an inadequate view of the Holy Spirit. Yes, sir? So if you're, if you're thinking and you're thinking of doing something, mm-hmm. when that thought comes in, you're not supposed to do that. And the Holy Spirit can make you say, you know, you know better than that. Well, the Holy Spirit does intersect with the mind. We'll, we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about, we'll, 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 in fact, we'll parse through a lot of the things like conviction, illumination, guidance. We'll actually spend considerable time on all of those to talk about how the Holy Spirit does these things. But I would say that, yes, he is doing them. How exactly? Well, I'll, I'll say, please stand by. Okay. Come back next week. <laughs> but, we, yeah, we will talk about every one of those, of those topics so we'll see if we can't uh, put some flesh on, on the bones we're, we're putting, putting out tonight. Okay. Mm-hmm. Self-consciousness, and that's, you know, that's not what teenage girls have here. Uh, self-consciousness, what I mean here is he has a consciousness of himself. He, he recognizes himself. He looks in the mirror. Yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how I describe someone having self-consciousness. They look in the mirror and do something about it. Okay. It, I mean, that's the best way of illustrating what self-consciousness is. Your, your kitty cat doesn't do that. It might look in the mirror, and if it's a dumb cat, it might attack the mirror, but it, but it, but it does not actually look in the mirror and say, you know, here's our place there, we'll, we'll fix that. Uh, that's, that's what I mean here when I say self-consciousness. The ability to objectify oneself to one's own thoughts and know that he's done so. People can do this, but only incompletely. Uh, we, we say we, we know in part. We see as in a glass dimly. We, we're, able to, we're able to analyze ourselves, but we, we recognize that we're, we're often self-esteemed in what we see. And that's why you look in the mirror and sometimes you don't do something about it because you think it can't possibly be true. Uh, but, uh, 
but God himself is able to objectify himself in, in his own thoughts better than any of us. And uh, we find here that who knows the mind of God except man's spirit? Who, uh, who understands the mind except for the spirit of God? And, and it's all in the context of him communicating to us that we are the sons of God. Freedom, self-determination, ability to make decisions apart from external constraint. That's, that's what I mean by pure freedom. Uh, you're able to make uh, decisions up, apart from any external constraint. We all have a little bit of freedom. That's a, that's a mark of personality. Uh, we have freedom, but we all have some intrinsic constraints that, that, are, that, that compel us not to do certain things. God does not. The only constraints that he has are his own character and decree. Uh, we do find that God cannot lie. Uh, so it is possible for us to say that God cannot do something, but only things that he has told us because of his character and his person, he won't do these things because that's, that's just not what God does. Uh, but those are, those, are, those are self-imposed limitations, I say. Uh, so we could say here he's not absolutely free and that he can't do things contrary to his nature, but he is purely free. No one can override God. Uh, we have quite a bit of freedom as humans. Even animals, perhaps, you might say, have a measure of freedom. Um, we as humans have more freedom, but the, the freedom that we have is always constrained. There are certain things that uh, we can be stopped from doing by forces external to ourselves. Now, you, I, I watched a guy, Bill Combs, they uh, turned the key on his, uh, on his truck and nothing happened. Batteries is dead. Okay. Well, he thought he had some freedom that he didn't have. There was an external constraint uh, that he wasn't aware of, and it's not free. And we're all, we've all been there. <laughs> and, uh, and I think uh, there's a little text box here, I think, that you have there. It says that uh, there's this, this, this question here about God's freedom and this idea of divine passability. It's a term that's used uh, here, divine impassibility. And the idea here is God is free of what I say here, of passions. Now, that's not to say he doesn't have emotions. In fact, the next point is the fact that uh, God as a person does have emotions. But there, are, but, they are, but there is a sense in which we can talk about God being impassive. And the idea here is that no one can independently, without God's knowledge or expectation or even decree, can do something to God that surprises him. That's, that's the nature of what God is. In that sense, he is impassive. You know, we have... The difference seems to be that emotions are sourced in your disposition. God hates. Why does God hate? Because that is his intrinsic disposition against sin. God loves because that's just who he is. He is a loving God. Um, but, but he doesn't fall in love. He doesn't feel surges of compassion like we do because of something that he sees and didn't anticipate, like like we can, you know. My, my son has some tension sometime in school, and uh, it leads to exasperation. But uh, David has a way of pulling on your heartstrings, and so that you, 
where you were frustrated and angry with him, he just sort of melts you. Well, that, those kinds of things don't happen with God. Because God, God, God can't be surprised. Nothing can take him off guard. And so, if I can read here, indulge me this, William Shedd says this, God cannot be wrought upon, cannot be impressed by the universe of matter and mind which he has created from nothing. Creatures are passively related to one another. They are made to be affected by other creatures, but not the Creator. The Creator is self-subsistent and independent of creation, so that he is not passively correlated to anything external to himself. Even when God is complacent towards the creature's holiness and displacent towards his sin, he gets angry. This is not the same as a passive impression on a sensuous organism, us eliciting a temporary sensation that was previously unfelt. Sin and holiness are not substances. God's love and wrath are self-moved, unceasing energies of the divine nature. He is voluntarily and eternally complacent towards good and displacing towards evil. He is free because, and because of the fact that he is free, he is unaffected. He is unaffected emotionally. He is unaffected in what he does. And all this is true of the Holy Spirit because he does things as he determines. Again, he gives these gifts as he determines. Because no one can stop him and tell him, yeah, don't do it that way. He does whatever he wants. Nothing can stay his hands, says Daniel, or say, what are you doing? Because he does everything he wants to. He does have emotion. He dispositions. He loves. He grieves. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, we find these fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these, we tend to think of these terms as, as more or less emotional for the most part. And, uh, you know, but they're not purely emotional, they're also behavioral. And uh, I think he's, he's got these. And he's got moral agency, which I think is just wrapped up in the whole idea that he is the Holy Spirit. So he must have some sort of moral agency here. He is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's a person. Personal pronouns are used of the Holy Spirit, and I actually find this some of, one of the more fascinating aspects of, uh, of, of, of a little bit of a little bit of Greek here. Not too much here, teeny bit. Uh, we'll get that occasionally here. Uh, but uh, the Greek noun pneuma, spirit, is actually a is actually a neuter term. You know, in in uh, in, uh, in uh, we we don't have this in English, we, but in Greek you have three uh, genders. You've got masculine, you've got feminine, and then you've got what is called neuter, which is neither. Um, and sometimes it corresponds to you know the the gender of the thing being addressed, but sometimes it, it's the kind of thing that's being addressed. And the neuter tends to be um, restricted to abstract types of ideas. So, spirit or air or wind, abstract concepts, and so they are. So they are in the neuter. But it's very interesting when you look at several occasions in the uh, in the uh, New Testament. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, and the uh, the writers of Scripture actually do something grammatically incorrect, at least according to the rules of grammar. Uh, don't hear me saying that there's errors in the Bible here tonight. Uh, but, but there are occasions where, the, where the, the writers of Scripture, under divine influence, 
are, are referring to the uh, Holy Spirit, normally they would refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, grammatically. But they actually break the rules of grammar and say him. Um, John 16, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes. Well, that's not right. It should be it. When it, the Spirit. But no, they recognize that there are personal qualities here. And they, and they don't want to use it for that. So they make it he. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak of his own. He will speak what he hears. He will tell you what is to come. And it keeps going on. He, 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 he. But, uh, but it's actually not supposed to be he. It's supposed to be it, grammatically. Uh, but John recognizes that there could be confusion. So he changes that for that purpose. There are actually a couple of occasions where they don't, uh, which is perhaps interesting. Uh, there are three occasions, John 14, 17, Romans 8, 16, and 26, where they actually do use the term it, uh, which corresponds grammatically uh, to spirit. I don't, don't, don't imagine from that that this means uh, that there is something impersonal about the Holy Spirit. The fact is, most of the time they do change it. They break the rules of grammar to make sure we recognize the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a person, not a force, not an energy. He's actually involved in what we are doing. He's a person. Uh, he's juxtaposed with other persons. He's another comforter of the same kind as Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to send you another comforter of the same kind. His name is the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, the Holy Spirit and us, three persons deciding together to make a de decision. Uh, he, we, we, we think about the baptism uh, that we, we, uh, rite that we go through and what we normally say, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are all persons. There are three persons in the Godhead. And then just a handful of other actions that are attributed only to persons, tested, resisted, blasphemed, and blaspheme a dog, can't be done. Insulted, lied to, obeyed, all these things tell us that he is, in fact, a person. Okay? Questions here? Like I say, it gets more interesting. So, if tonight it seems like, eh, it's a bit dry. It is. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. Um, but uh, I think there's some foundational things we need to get out of the way. And I think once we get to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, things that, like I say, will get a little more lively. He is also God. He is a divine person and a distinct person in the Trinity, which is always mind-boggling. So here he's co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal with the Father and Son. He's called God. Perhaps the uh, best occasion here is in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira uh, sell this piece of property, bring a portion of that money and get granted to the church. Uh, but when they do this, that was a great, great thing for them to do, but when they do this, what do they say? You know, here, here's the whole price of that property that we sold. And they were confronted on the, on the issue, in fact, given a chance to uh, renege on what they just said. So they said, oh no, this is it. And what's the, what's the response? You have not lied to men, but to God. And he says, you've lied then to the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, he's not just a man, not a human. He's God. Uh, so he is 
called God. He possesses the attributes of God. Uh, he has all knowledge. No one directs the Spirit of God, Isaiah 40 says. No one consults with him. He has all knowledge. Who has taught him anything? No one. The Holy Spirit has all knowledge to begin with. He needs no instruction. He's omnipresent. This perhaps becomes a little bit more uh, a, a more of a, an imminent idea here, something that's a little bit clo- more close at hand. He's everywhere. Um, something that we should probably live more with the knowledge of. Uh, so maybe get a little bit of a devotional flavor here. God is everywhere. Where can I go from your spirit? Can I send up to heaven? No. He's there. Can I make my bed in hell? Probably the grave here, but I, but I think it would include even the, the nether world. Just there. I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. I cross the ocean. God's there. He spots everything I do. Uh, sometimes we're, we're tempted to say, if I, I will see if no one sees me. I mean, we don't actually say those terms, but we think it all the time, right? I'll do this so long as nobody sees me. Well, somebody does see you. God sees you. The Holy Spirit. He can't be can't be avoided. He's there. He's omnipotent. Uh, the Spirit is described as having the power of the Most High. In fact, the context here is a miracle. The power of the Most High is going to make a woman who has not known a man a child. That's weird. But the Holy Spirit has that power. He has that ability. He's got eternity. It's called the eternal spirit. He's got love. Love of the spirit. It's called the Holy Spirit. So he's got holiness, truth. The spirit of truth. And he's got life again here. Uh, that is uh, the source of life. And he also does things that are connected with the uh, work of God creation. That's going to be one of our first topics of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. Uh, so he creates Spirit of God was out, was out there after the initial create, creation event, and he's hovering over the water. Well, what's he doing? Well, apparently, he is maintaining, maintaining what's actually been created there, overseeing the process of creation. Job 26 says, By the Spirit the heavens are cleared. Probably a reference here to the second day of creation, when there's a division of the waters from the waters, dry lands appear. So there, there's, there's activities, the Holy Spirit, where he's involved in the uh, uh, early days of creation. He regenerates. God can do that. Born from above. Born of the Spirit. He's being born from above, being regenerated, born again. He raises people from the dead. Romans 8 says only God can do that. No human can do that. He sanctifies. He inspires scripture is a rather complex concept here. He causes people to write the exact words of God without error. That's only something God could do. Conceives the human nature of Christ. Convicts of sin. So all of these things tell us that uh, he is God. Now we get a little bit into perhaps a a more thorny topic here, and that is his relationship to the other members of the Godhead. And Perhaps here's where we get a a little bit of controversy at the end. Um, how is he related to the other members of the Godhead? Well, I think, first of all, we have to say that he is distinct. That's, that's uh, hopefully, where there's not much debate about that. But then, we have to figure out, how does he relate with the other members of the Godhead? In the various testaments, 
And then, as far as his relationship is in subordination to the others, how, how does that work? Well, we find that certainly he is he is a separate person. You know, at the baptism of Christ, sons in the water, spirit comes down as a dove, father speaks from a cloud. Okay, so there's three of them. Now, spirit leads the son into the wilderness for the temptation, and where he makes statements about and to the father. Okay, so there's three people there. We're going to get baptized in all three. Jesus prays to the Father to send forth another comforter. So we're getting some, some ideas here that there is, in fact, a trinity. Um, in fact, really, until we get to the New Testament, the whole idea of a trinity is a bit cloudy. Uh, that's not to say that there wasn't trinity, but the question is, do they know about it? And uh, my short answer is, no, I don't think they did. I don't think they understood about the Trinity here, which is perhaps a, you know, perhaps a surprise. Um, but some of these things were not uh, progressively revealed to them. It wasn't certainly fully revealed. In fact, the, the, the emphasis in the Old Testament seems to be that, what, the, God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so there's there's this emphasis on the unity of God, which is true. But they might have started to pick up some ideas. Uh, we talk about the Spirit of God. Okay, if he's the Spirit of God, that means Spirit's here and God is somewhere else. If he's the Spirit of God. Uh, we find uh, Isaiah speaking here, uh, when uh, particularly in Isaiah 48 and 61, where the author who does seem to be speaking on behalf of the Messiah, says, the Lord God has sent me and also his spirit. So we're getting perhaps pieces of the Trinity together. Uh, so it's possible the Old Testament saint was starting to piece it together. Um, but very likely he did not have a clear picture of the Trinity. This is really reserved for the, for the New Testament. Okay? So, once we come to the New Testament, then we discover that there, there is a relationship between this, and perhaps this is uh, um, one of the more difficult topics here. Um, and I say here, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. That's uh, John 15, 26, your key text on this, um, where we find uh, that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father, and perhaps by the Son, there's a big debate in history, the Counselor who will come, so I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And so there's some question here, okay, how is the Holy Spirit then related to the other members of the Godhead? Did God create the Holy Spirit? Um... What does this mean, that he is sent out from the Father, and perhaps in some sense by the Son as well here? In fact, there's quite a bit of debate uh, in, the, in the early church. In fact, if, you're, if you know your church history, you know that, the, uh, that the, 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 the splitting of the Roman Catholic Church from the Eastern Orthodox Church was over this issue, right? Okay, this, this, was, this was the issue. Uh, probably more the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, but it was the issue. This was this was the this was the watershed issue that actually caused the split. Uh, the, the the 
Nicene Creed uh, said uh, that the Holy Spirit was sent forth uh, from the Father. And then members of the Western Church in a council in Toledo, Spain, about as far west as they could get at the time, uh, they go along and they switch the words of the uh, Nicene Creed. They add the words, filioque, which means end son. And the uh, Eastern Church did not like this because they, one, didn't agree, and probably more importantly, they didn't think it was right that the Western Church could change the words without consulting the Eastern Church. And so this ends up being the straw that breaks the camel's back. And so even to this day, we've got the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and this, is, this was the issue that they split over. Um, so what does it mean that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father? Well, there's some debate here. What could it mean? Well, it could mean, and uh, obviously not all of these are true, so don't hear me saying that all of these are po valid possibilities. We're going to come down to one conclusion. It could mean that there wasn't a trinity before this time, okay, or that there was no functional subordination in the Godhead. So if there was a trinity, they were all equal. Okay, they were all you know, on, 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 on the same level, or perhaps God created the Holy Spirit at this time. He, you know, the Holy Spirit proceeded out from the Father, uh, where before he no longer existed, did not previously exist. But I don't think that really works, uh, because, for one, we've got the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament. Uh, we, we find him active. And also, I think, because of the, uh, uh, the, uh, of, the, of the immutability of God. God is Trinity. It's not as though he became Trinity at some point. Uh, so what does it mean, then, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Well, some would say that there was a still a creation point, but it wasn't from all, but it was in eternity past. Um, you know, so sometime in eternity past, before God spoke the world into existence, uh, God caused the Holy Spirit to pop into existence. But again, even though perhaps this solves the problem of the Holy Spirit's activity in the, whole, in the, in the Old Testament, still, still creates this problem of the immutability of God. God is Trinity. It's not as though he was one and then he became three. He is an immutable God. He changes not from, from one day to the next, from one eon to the next. God always is eternally Trinity. He, so he's called the eternal spirit. Um, also, I think uh, maybe we're getting getting off into a little topic here that's a little bit uh, fuzzy out there philosophically. Um, but God does not seem to be bound by time anyway. So when we talk about before the creation, it, it, we're, we're suggesting here that God is somehow bound by time when God really is the father of time. And so he's the one who invented time, as it were. So to talk about something that happened in time, before time, kind of a weird concept. So I, I just don't think that works. There is a popular option among conservatives that God has spirated or produced the sun from all eternity. And so there is an act of eternal procession uh, that corresponds to the fact that there is an eternal generation of the sun. We 
here, we, we understand that this, that Jesus is the Son of God, and we understand that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Perhaps there is some sort of eternal activity of God whereby he makes himself God. So there's, it still has the same problem. They suggest that God's being is not so much an essence as an act. Um, my suggestion here is that is this final one, that this procession really has to do with a function of the Holy Spirit. That there always has been a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit. Uh, those, that's an eternal relationship that has always been. However, he is sent out on a new mission uh, after Christ returns to heaven. So my, my understanding here is that this doesn't have anything to do with the existence or being of the Holy Spirit as so much as it has to do with the function of the Holy Spirit. He goes out. He proceeds on his new mission. And uh, we'll talk about some, some of the details of that new mission as uh, we work through this course here. But there are some new things that the Holy Spirit is doing in this era that he was not doing in previous eras. So that's, that's, that's my understanding here of, of what's going on. Um, any questions on that? I, I understand that there's quite a bit of debate on that one. Uh, if you have a question, I'd be happy to deal with it. Okay. Um, actually, I was going. I was trying to cruise through these 11 pages, and I cruised through them so fast I got done early. Um, <laughs> but uh, hopefully, uh, next week we'll be slowing down considerably, and uh, I'll just tell you sort of the uh, the uh, the plan for the rest of the class. We're going to start at our broadest point by talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, what He is doing on behalf of everyone without distinction, whether you're saved, unsaved. Then we're going to work in and talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers generally, all believers, Old Testament, New Testament. Then we're going to zone in on the Holy Spirit's specific activity with respect to um, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, and <coughs> that's, that's we're, so we're working sort of in concentric circles here as we narrow in on the Holy Spirit's activity specifically with us, uh, with the church. Any uh, final questions about where we're headed this semester, this term? What do you call it? Semester term? Semester sounds very academic. I'm afraid. Yes. Look, I, I want to ask this before because I thought we were going to not. You know, I don't want to hang up. Sorry, sorry. I, I, I apologize if, if I made it seem that way. Because okay. <laughs> and, um, I know we read the Holy Spirit, and by like almost tied into what I was saying, if you know you're not supposed to do it, you do it, and you read the Holy Spirit. But by, when you say lying to the Holy Spirit, you lie to the Holy Spirit, but not by surprise. Though. It's not no. by surprise. You right. God right. So, so God, and that, that's that's the point of God being dispassionate. He can be wrought upon, but he can't be wrought upon independently. He can't be surprised. No one can do something that God didn't anticipate or that God did not plan for. And so that in that sense, I would say that God is, the Holy Spirit is dispassionate in that sense. Because he is totally free and he has all knowledge. I think that's, that's what renders him that way. Okay?
Anything else? Okay. Okay, next week we'll get into a little bit more practical material here on the work of the Holy Spirit. So we'll let you go four minutes early. I don't know if that's going to be a pattern, but it, was, it is that way tonight. So come back next week.